This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how serious eating disorders are and how evidence-based FBT treatment is scarce, but effective. Today, however, we wanna take this a little bit further and talk about what we've been doing in our clinic to adapt evidence-based principles to address eating disorders at the point of primary care. Though typically the responsibilities of the primary care provider are limited to identifying eating disorders, referring these patients and medical management, primary care providers have vast experience empowering caregivers to help their children change behavior. Because of this, equipping primary care providers to deliver evidence-based interventions for restrictive eating disorders has potential to expand access to early intervention and improve outcomes. This episode is the fifth in our eating disorder edition, focusing on treating eating disorders in primary care. This episode will discuss strategies informed by evidence-based FBT principles that can be used by a primary care provider to address eating disorder symptoms. Today, we're joined by Drs. Paige Partain and Angela Matke, Mayo Clinic Children's Center pediatricians, and two of my colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Paige and Angie. Thanks for having us back again. Yeah. I wanted to kind of start by talking about what we're doing in our clinic and then really sort of distill it down to the principles that that the primary care provider at home without sort of the infrastructure we have can can use in their day-to-day interactions with patients to provide a little bit of intervention. This can be really useful when you don't have someone to refer to, or if you have a patient on one of these really, really long waiting lists to get into specialty care. Like I said, I think that primary care is so useful in halting the progression of symptoms and in totally reversing symptoms um, if they're kind of armed with some of these strategies. What we do in our clinic has been informed by a family-based treatment, which is the first-line evidence-based treatment for these kids. And really, we've used some of those principles but modified them for primary care. Angie, do you want to talk about what an average visit in our clinic kind of looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it can be really applied to what their primary care providers could be doing is if they're bridging some of these patients. I mean, this is exactly what Dr. Partain and I do because we don't always see our own patients too that we identify in our clinics. We'll often send them to see, you know, one of our partners in our clinic or one of the more higher levels of care. So like the very first thing is that we have nurses that are trained um, in FBT as well, and they do an incredible job really helping partner with us and delivering this care. So the first thing they do is they room the patient, they'll get the vital signs and they'll go get their weight with them. And in our clinic, we do an unblinded weight unless there's specific concerns that knowing that weight really causes problems with our treatment in that moment, but eventually we will get them to know what their weight is um, as part of the process. And so we'll have them wear the same amount of clothes at each weight. And if there's any concerns that they're they're hiding things, they have tons of layers on, they'll just put them in a gown. So pretty simple. The goal for weight gain is about one to two pounds per week. We use kilograms. So that's about 0.4 to 0.8 kilograms per week. And that's really important to make sure that you're making progress. That's just like very fundamental part of FBT is making sure that you are having sustained weight gain. And we know that 
especially in the first month of treatment or so, that that, that weight gain goals and hitting that is going to be really important. And yeah. Jocelyn, maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. I think your point about unblinded weights is a really, really important one. This is something that actually the literature is kind of, we haven't studied it. We don't have evidence based to do it one way or the other. And a lot of centers blind weights. Mm-hmm. The reason why FBT uses unblinded weights and why I like to do it in our clinic, there's a couple of reasons because it can make more stress in the session, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why we do it first thing. So you've got the whole session to kind of deal with that instead of weighing them and sending them off to the parking lot. Right. But I think for these kids, they think I gained 40 pounds this week while they're not thrilled to see the one to two pounds per week. It's really helpful to have this data week after week that this is not uncontrolled that you're gaining, but it's, it's not what your eating disorder is telling you. It's also, I think really important that they see that progression because eventually they're going to learn their weight. They're going to step on a scale in gym class. They're going to find a scale somewhere. You know, we try to coach parents to hide their scales at home. So they're not weighing there, but they're going to see their weight. And if they see a jump of 20 pounds, that's a huge issue. That feels scary. That kind of confirms their eating disorders fears. Seeing it week after week, it's an exposure, which is a pretty evidence-based psychological principle. They can get used to this in sort of stepwise progressions. I just wanted to make a point of that because I do think that it can be uncomfortable and the instinct is let's just not deal with it. But again, it's eventually going to come out. I do think too, if you're unblinding weights, one of the experiences that I've had is it's important to, at the very least, work with the whole team, especially your nursing colleagues about how to react to that weight. I think it's easy if you are aiming for weight gain to get really excited and sort of overly reactive toward that, but it's going to be really hard for patients to tolerate. I've had a few cases where well-meaning primary doctors, you know, say things about what a great job. Oh my gosh, do you have rocks in your pants? You know, like, look how much you gained in one week trying to encourage them, but that's really, really hard for the patients. And it's, it's really more about having just a neutral approach to whatever the weight is. Like, here's your weight this week. This is what it is. So kind of helping to talk that through with your team as you're rooming the patient in the first steps of the visit so that you sort of set things up for success. I think that's such a good point. And I'm so bad at that. I'm so guilty of being like, yes, we did it. High fives all around. And it doesn't feel like that to the patient. And it's also in FBT and in our interventions, we're taking this off the patient's shoulders. We're empowering parents to really monitor meals and push weight restoration as the first priority. When we do that, by congratulating the kid, it kind of does imply this was your fault, which can really make it harder for the eating disorder thoughts. And after the weight is entered in and graphed and we've got all that information, what happens next? Yeah. So the next part of the visit involves problem solving. So did they gain weight? Did they not gain weight? To really get an idea, especially if they didn't reach our weight goals for the week, is understanding kind of what that week looked like. What was the consumption like? What was it like at mealtime? who was monitoring, who was preparing, those kind of things. And I usually get at this by kind of starting first with what went really well this week because these sessions are so heavy and they always feel like they're failing all the time. I'll hear back from families. It's just, let's focus on what went well (laughs) first and then build on from like, okay, what were the challenges this week? And it's really important and we'll get to this because this is part of the principles of FBT is really to empower the families to come up with solutions to some of the challenges and problem solve things together with us, but also on their own about how they can change things a little bit. And then the last thing is when you're doing this, it can be really uncomfortable. And maybe like Paige has um, other thoughts on this, but sometimes depending on the patient, they really struggle with having these conversations either while they're there or not. And it sometimes can be counterproductive with them in the room because maybe they will counteract everything that the parent says and nothing is better. You know, there's no improvements, their appetite's not better. And their parents are sitting there going, shaking their head behind them going, 
what? No, like I'm, you know, I'm seeing complete opposite. Like I have my child back, they're eating, they're hungry. I'm not seeing them fixated on cognitive distortions anymore. And so sometimes we'll, we'll have the patient actually leave the room because really the intervention is with the parents. And if they're being counterproductive to achieving those goals or frankly disruptive, sometimes they're rude, angry, get up and leave. We'll just excuse them and, and work with the family. Yep. I think it's something that's goes against what we typically learn when we're training as providers. We typically always just talk with the adolescent one-on-one. We don't always make time to talk with the parents one-on-one, but I have found that particularly early in treatment, when the patient is still really struggling with those cognitive distortions and with all the distress that the eating and the weight gain causes, it can be helpful to have them step out of the room for some of the really more concrete nitty gritty problem solving. So I'll often kind of balance it by having a little bit of time with the teen first to just give them a chance to feel heard and to help me understand where they're coming from. And then I'll say, okay, we're going to flip flop now. So I'm going to have you sit in the waiting room for me for just a couple of minutes so I can chat with your mom. So I think that normalizes it a little bit too, and helps them understand like this is all part of the, the normative part of your treatment. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about here is our intervention for restrictive eating disorders for, for patients who are underweight. So what we're doing is charging parents to monitor meals to get their kids to gain weight, because that is the most important thing. Weight restoration has been shown to be the driving factor behind the resolution of psychological and physical symptoms that come with an eating disorder. Paige, you want to speak about how we kind of push this weight restoration? What sort of special things parents need to know in order to be able to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I think core to this principle really taking the front seat is making sure that you hammer it home in that initial session when you're talking about the fact that food is their medicine and that we're not going to get them better psychologically until we get them gaining weight and we help essentially stop their brain from starving. So once you've done that, then the focus becomes how do we do that and how do we push through this weight restoration? Because the, the reality is that from a physical standpoint, what happens in their bodies as we are restoring weight is that their metabolism often goes from very restricted, burning very few calories to try and preserve what they have to then all of a sudden going, oh my gosh, food and sort of jumping into overdrive. And so it's not uncommon for these patients to require 3,000, 4,000, even 5,000 calories in a day just to gain that half a pound or pound a week. Do you usually give them a calorie limit or a meal plan in session? Oh, that's a great question. I don't typically. I find that often that causes more fixation on the food. Now, that being said, occasionally if I'm talking with a parent one-on-one and they're wanting more concrete information about like, am I giving them enough at the meals? Like, here's what I'm giving them. It's this many calories. Sometimes I'll give them some general guidelines, like no three or 400 calories in a meal is not typically what we want. We're going to need something a little bit more than that. Like that's about the amount I would want in a snack, or, you know, if we're making them a calorie dense shake, maybe let's aim for four four or 500 calories with that. But typically I'm not giving like daily calorie goals especially not to the patient, but often not to the parents either. We just sort of want to get a general sense of what they're eating in a day and then recognize that, okay, weight restoration is key. But in order to do that, we're going to have to be literally what I call treatment eating, which is like eating way more than you would in a typical day for a typical teenager, because that is what their body needs. And I think that's in line with FBT principles, right? FBT is about what can the parents sustain over a long period of time? Because this is a marathon treatment. And so this idea of very, very rare Would we have a parent counting calories, recording food, doing these things because it really makes it cumbersome and difficult. I joke that like what I do is the most simple. If your weight goes up, good. If your weight is the same, you need to add more. And if your weight goes down, we need to eat a lot more. You know, it's really based on that sort of data. 
do you give them a meal plan? How do you kind of talk about what types of food page? I think at the end of the day, we focus on getting calories in. I say that, and we talk about not focusing on calories, but thinking about calorie dense foods. So I don't typically give them a specific plan, but what I do is we sort of break down, what are they eating right now? When you go through that week, when you do that week in review, like Dr. Mackey was talking about, and then where can we put in more of the calorie dense foods? Because the reality is they're going to feel really full. They're often going to tell you they're not hungry or that their stomach hurts. And so we can't get them all the calories that they need in a salad. You know, they're going to have to have something that is more nutritionally dense. And so I tend to focus on those kinds of foods and make sure that we're getting those at least several times a day. So I think about things like nut butters and protein where you can get them and kind of higher fat foods and additives like adding olive oil when you're making pasta or including butter when you're having vegetables or those kinds of things so that we can really get the calories in over the course of the day, sort of spaced out over the course of the day. And that it really is an unusual way of eating, right? I have people mixing heavy whipping cream into their milk, you know, doing things that you were not going to do long-term, but just Mm -hmm. during this period. What do you do about exercise? If they're coming in every week and they're meeting their goals and they're gaining weight, I'll often give them a little bit of privilege in terms of their exercise or their sports, as long as that's medically that they're stable. So often in the very beginnings, if I'm concerned about medical stability, we're going to hit the pause button on exercise for a period of time until I see their heart rate come up until their EKG normalizes. But then as we move forward in treatment, I think it's really important for them to be able to have some sort of exercise. We're asking them to do something incredibly difficult, incredibly mentally strenuous. And so having that ability to have an outlet and exercise is going to be really good for them. But I think it's a very careful balance. So as long as they are making progress, I'm okay letting them continue sort of what they're doing in exercise. Often I'll give them more specific guidelines in the beginning. I'll say, let's try some walking this week and see how you do going out and taking some walks. And if you do okay, and it's a cross country runner and they want to go on some runs. Okay. Why don't you do a couple of like 30 minute runs this week and see how it goes and sort of give them more specific guidelines around that as long as we're still making progress. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked a lot about sort of what you want these parents to do. You want them to feed their kid a lot. You want to keep them from being overly active. Um, you want them to be monitoring these meals, but how do you teach them how to do this? What should they expect? I think it starts by teaching them really the, the core principles of FBT first to give them a foundation of kind of then how to do it. So I'm just going to kind of briefly go through them and then talk about how the actual like refeeding happens. So in order to like even start FBT, you have to have this agnostic approach, meaning that we don't know what the cause was. And we really have to get that through the family to make sure that we can move on to our next step of refeeding and focusing on that. And in the same aspect of like removing the guilt, blame, and shame that goes along with eating disorder. So that's like number one. And then the next thing is we need parents to refeed their child. That is the fundamental to FBT. And we need to take over everything they can about decisions about food and empower them that they can do this. And through doing that, we teach them that food is their medicine and is the only medicine and all medicine is good, right? So families are so used to labeling foods as junk foods or bad foods or foods we don't eat in our own house and things like that. And so we have to kind of get rid of those labels and just like your body doesn't care. It takes it all in and breaks it down to be the same like fundamental carbohydrate hydrates, fat, and protein that it uses to build on, um, especially when it's in a catabolic state. And then we teach families because food is their medicine. And this is so fundamental that if their child was had a, like a 
chronic medical condition that they had to take medication for every day, would you let them take half of their epilepsy medication? Or more specifically, we, we really use this medical metaphor in our practice with cancer. And it's cancer is a super heavy, it's a super real thing. And it really gets at a lot of these principles I just talked about. So if your child had cancer, would you try and figure out why did they get cancer and blame somebody for their cancer? No, you wouldn't. You'd be like, how do we get my child treatment? How do we get them into remission? Right. And so it's the same idea. And we can use that same medical metaphor when we come to talk about taking all of their treatment and all of their medicine and why we can't let them not do it. And so I would, I would explain to them that they can't take half of their chemotherapy, or if your kid didn't feel good and didn't want to go in and start their treatment for whatever it might be for their cancer, you wouldn't be like, Oh, they're not, they weren't feeling it today. We're just going to cancel this round of chemo. You know what I mean? Like we'll, we'll try it next week. No, that's never going to happen. Your child is always going to get their treatment. And we need to do that for eating disorders because they are just as serious. We've talked about previously, you know, 20% of patients can die, up to 20% of patients can die from complications of their eating disorders. And when we look at cancer and we pull that same medical metaphor through, if their child had ALL, which is the most common type, as all these listeners know, of childhood leukemia, about 90% of kids will be able to um, survive and go into remission after 10 years of treatment. But with eating disorders, it's 20%. So like, why is there that flexibility around eating and not finishing their food? There shouldn't be, and there can't be because they have to get all of their medicine and kind of using that lingo is really, really powerful with, with their children instead of using bargaining and, and not completely having them eat at all. I think as a provider, that medical metaphor is a really helpful touchstone for me because you get these families who come in and they really want, you know, we paid for this class trip and, mm -hmm. you know, she's been looking forward to it and you're like, oh, I really want to make this happen for you. But then mm -hmm. I'm like, wait, would I be like, okay, we'll just pause your chemotherapy for mm -hmm. two weeks while you go to Disney World with the band. Like, no, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. It helps me kind of get my head straight with it yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, another really important thing that families need to do is really separate the illness from their child. Because as we start this refeeding process, their child is going to potentially look very different than anything that they've experienced. They might have like the super compliant, always respectful child that all of a sudden is like angry and smell smearing grape jelly. Like you have referenced in, with some of your patients, taking grape jelly and smearing it on their parent's face when they didn't want to eat it. Right. And that any type of those kind of escalation of behaviors, refusal of food, avoidance of food, food, where we see the escalation of kind of behaviors or mood or anxiety with that, that is all the illness. That is us poking the bear of their illness and that is not their child. And I'll kind of like even think about it like a devil sort of on their shoulder and that's the devil kind of doing all this sort of stuff. And you still have your child and you're going to get your child back as soon as we get that eating disorder kind of out of your child's brain where it's consuming and just controlling every decision related to food. I think that's great. And I think that that helps with that sort of reducing guilt and blame too. Parents feel like they caused this, which we know that they did not. And they also blame their kids. They're mad at their kids. It looks like their kid is acting badly, right? Mm -hmm. Making a choice. And this idea that like, this is not your child. Your child feels so guilty for what they're putting you through, even if they'll never show you or tell you. Mm -hmm. This is the eating disorder taking over. I think that's so powerful. This is great. We've talked a little about the role of nursing, but in order to really tackle these disorders, you really need all hands on deck. Paige, do you want to talk about how we can kind of leverage our team, whether it's, you know, nursing staff, people who work with us every day or, or specialists? 
Yeah, I think that's a hugely important part of being successful, particularly from a primary care setting is having an entire team that can work around this. So I think in a primary care setting, the way that we really leverage our nursing colleagues is by helping them understand some of the core principles. My nurses are always looking to learn and to sort of grow. And they've asked me lots of questions about this. So over time, they've started to really pick up on many of these principles of recognizing this isn't your child. It's not your fault. The food is their medicine. This is crucially important. And so they can always be there to back up the message, even if it's a day that they're calling in and I might be out of the office. They're also hugely important for that in-person interaction, like we talked about in the office and really trying to just maintain neutral and help start the visit off on a really helpful foot, but also recognizing the importance of getting an accurate weight and making sure that, for instance, our orthostatic vital signs are accurately done and reflective of the patient's true medical status. So I think that they can be helpful on so many levels. You know, we're very sort of blessed to work with nurses that have had extra training in FBT and in eating disorders in our specialty clinic. But even the nurses in my typical primary care clinic have picked up on a lot of these things and are really helpful in terms of reinforcing a lot of these concepts when I have a patient who's coming to see me outside the specialty clinic. Mm -hmm. If I have patients that are seeing subspecialists, other, you know, pediatricians, maybe they're seeing PEDS GI, maybe they're seeing endocrine. I think it's really important that we coordinate with those subspecialists and really try to stay on message. So, you know, if they've been through a full subspecialty workup, maybe they've been to PEDS GI because they were having a lot of weird symptoms that we couldn't quite put our finger on. We thought might be the eating disorder, but maybe they've gone there. They've had a full lab workup. They've had a scope. We didn't find any pathologic gastrointestinal cause for their symptoms. We suspect that this is all related to their eating disorder. I think it's crucially important when their doctor reinforces the importance of our treatment and particularly the importance of weight gain. I found that I've had much more success when that's the case, when I'm partnering with those subspecialists. So, you know, sometimes particularly early in the treatment of a patient, I call and I talk with the subspecialist too, because, you know, I want to make sure that I'm keeping a really nice broad differential and that I'm not sort of prematurely settling on an eating disorder. So I like to talk with them a little bit to, to sort of use multiple brains as we're looking at this and saying, Hey, what else are you thinking? I'm really worried about the possibility of an eating disorder. I'm seeing these things, but I'm also seeing these symptoms. And I think if you partner with them from the beginning, as you're looking at some of these complex cases, then once you go through the medical workup and you feel more confident in your diagnosis of an eating disorder, it's much easier to have them backing you up and really staying on message in terms of the treatment, particularly in cases when patients might've started at a higher weight or a higher BMI. I think we as medical physicians are sort of trained from the beginning to think high BMI bad. And I think it's important for them to recognize if this is a patient who's lost 30 or 40 pounds from a BMI that started at the 90th percentile, yes, we're going to have to ask them to gain weight. That's the way their brain is going to heal and get better. And so I definitely have a lot more success in those cases when I'm partnering with the subspecialists from the get-go. It really helps the parents too, I think, to, to hear it from multiple doctors and they're hearing something consistent. So it really hammers things home and gets them bought into the treatment because it's a hard treatment. If they're not bought in, it's going to be really, really challenging to be successful. So when it comes to meal monitoring, Angie, are there specific things that you tell parents? Are there things that are helpful? You know, the most important thing is if parents can monitor all meals and snacks, that is going to be the ideal situation. And that is classic 
manualized FBT, the person doing all of the feeding and the choosing and the monitoring to make sure all of the meal is completed as a parent. But in reality, and I feel like in our, our FBT PC model, sometimes we have to use a little bit more flexibility and getting other people involved and sometimes sometimes graduating to unmonitored meals um, for certain times of the day. So whenever possible, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and th three snacks throughout the day would be monitored by a parent. And if this is possible for a family, I have families that go to the school and their child comes out and eats in the car with them, or um, they go home for lunch and they eat their meals there. A lot of times we get the school involved pretty quickly because that's where children spend the majority of their time, especially in a non-virtual uh, schooling uh, environment. So we will get the school involved and the children with an eating disorder will qualify for a 504 if needed. And the schools are often willing and willing to partner with on this to get somebody involved with meal monitoring. So it can be any type of adult, but they have to understand what it is and what they need to do. So it can be a nurse, a school counselor, or some other person that they've identified. Usually this tends to be a carrot that we use with our patients and that if they're gaining and they're eating everything that we need, we don't have to sometimes get as restrictive with what, where they can eat, who they can eat with in, in their school environment. But sometimes we have to start like that because things are so severe in the beginning and then pull back later as they are continuing to gain weight and they're brain is getting a little bit healthier where they actually can eat without an adult kind of making them eat. We will write letters to the school explaining kind of what we need. Parents will be the ones directly responsible with communication because that's the principle of FPT that we want to empower them to come up with ideas and work through challenges. So they'll, they'll send to the school what they're going to be having them eat every day. Sometimes we'll use a meal monitoring sheet where the family will write down exactly what's in the meal and what's in the snack, and then they will mark off um, how much was eaten in case something gets tampered with, food disappears on the way. This doesn't happen very often, but it does happen and it's part of the disease process. And so sometimes parents will even need to have everything taped up and they'll need to write it all down and they, they send it each day with the meal or they email it directly to them. And then the person will email it back with how much they've eaten and stuff. I will often tell the school that the kids cannot return um, to whatever lesson or school environment that they were in previously until they've completed all their meals. I don't explain it to the kids as a way to punish them. I'll just say, your brain is all that medicine. If your brain is not getting all that medicine, how can you even go back to learn in that kind of scenario? So it doesn't feel as punishment um, to them, even though it kind of is. Often school is one of the only things that motivates kids, unless you have a very socially anxious child who doesn't want to go to school, then it kind of doesn't work that well. Those are a couple of the things I would recommend. In the home environment, as much as you can try to remain neutral in your responses to meals is going to be really effective. Try not to yell, engage, um, bargain, or barter for food is going to be important. Sitting with them and eating at the same time is really supportive. If you're just sitting there staring at them, they get very upset and it, is, it can be really, really hard for them to eat. The last thing I would say is the kid doesn't leave until that meal is done. And if that meal takes two hours, that's fine. I will let them have like a 10 minute break if they need to get up, walk around and do a quick reset, but then they get right back to the meal. And so if that meal goes into the next meal and the next snack, it really sticking to that, sometimes even only one day of really enforcing that is enough to really get the eating disorder on board. I like that. I think we talk about life stops until the food is gone. And, you know, if the kid is eating, studies show that distraction is actually really helpful. So mm -hmm. talking about other things, playing games, you know, that's all great. But if they're just on their phone and not eating, that's mm -hmm. not going to fly. Life yep. has to stop. Yep. What about for those kids who will self-induce vomiting after meals? How do you monitor yeah. for that? 
parents, there's no going to the bathroom typically an hour after meals. And then if they do go to the bathroom, door stays open or a parent goes with them. Sometimes parents will just take off the door to the bathroom, but there are the self-induced vomiters that sometimes will vomit in their room. They'll vomit into bags of vomits. They'll hide them, all those kind of things around the house. So that just means that the kid stays with them. So they stay out in their environment. And if for those kids during that time, distraction is going to be key and making sure that they aren't focusing and ruminating on what they just ate and how they feel. So spending time with them, doing homework, playing games, going for walks, kind of all of those things that are going to help both build that home environment and that relationship with with their child is also going to be really helpful in those situations. And then at school, I would tell them the same thing about, you know, not going to the bathroom after meals is going to be really important. I think it's worth mentioning that there are resources out there. There are some that are better than others, but but the ones that we really like to use, you know, I think everyone in our clinic, including the nursing staff has read the parent manual the, by James Locke and Daniel LaGrange. It's called Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. This is a really nice introduction. It, it's written for families to what eating disorders are and what they do to your kid. They also have a treatment manual, but the, the parent manual tends to be a little more readable. We also have families go a lot of the time to the FEAST website. This is a nonprofit that was organized for parents by parents who have had children go through this. It can be a really helpful resource. We'll include a link to that in the, in the show notes. We've been talking about the treatment of eating disorders with Dr. Paige Partain and Dr. Angie Mackey. Thank you guys both for your time. Yeah, Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for everyone, stay healthy and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.